The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Make clear to us your word here this morning and teach us and build us up. We look to you for hope, thankful that the hope that you've given us doesn't fail. It's real, it's alive, it sustains us. So help us, we pray. Open your word and teach us from it, we, th- we ask you. Thanks, Lord. Amen. I doubt that any of us deliberately seek out suffering or hardship or loss in life. Not, not a chance. We, that's not how people work. In fact, quite the opposite, we all spend a lot of energy and a lot of time trying to avoid situations like that. In the back of our minds, though, we are aware we live in a fallen world, we are finite people, and we can't avoid those things. They come. We fall down and we fail. We get hurt. We hurt others. Trouble comes our way and we break. That's reality. That's reality for all of us, for for us who are Christians and for everybody in the world. And we live often in the back of our minds, aware of it and worried that the other shoe is going to drop and that something's going to happen. And we, we live fearing that. And when those things do come, not if, when, How do you respond? What do you do in the middle of some situation of hardship that despite your best efforts has come upon you and brought you suffering of some sort? Do you you think carefully and kind of work on it and, and try to get out of it? But what if you can't? Do you pray and ask the Lord who cares for you to get you out of it? But what if he says no? Do you then just suck it up and endure through it? But what if it's overwhelming and endless? Surprisingly, the Apostle Paul delighted in and even boasted in such situations. Not despite them, but because of them. And not after they were over, but right in the middle of them. He delighted in and boasted in them. That's what we're going to see today in our passage in 2 Corinthians 12. And that wasn't because he was crazy. Had, some, had a screw loose or something. That, that, is, that is not his deal. He wasn't in some sort of form of denial. In fact, the way he is is because he was a mature Christian And he understood this faith, and he understood the reality of being in relationship with Jesus and the remarkable good then that comes to us in the middle of, and ironically even because of, the garbage of life lived in this world. That's what we're going to look at today, 2 Corinthians 12. And we're going to see it as we continue on through this this boasting that we've We've seen Paul engage in over the last chapter, chapter and a half or so. As we've said, he's in this situation in this church in Corinth where despite 
everything in him, he is kind of forced into boasting about what he is and what his ministry is like because he's seeing a danger of the church being persuaded by other people who are boasting about themselves and he doesn't want them to be drawn away, the church to be drawn away and to follow these false teachers. And so he has to talk about true credentials and true ministry and what it actually looks like to be sent by God. And so he has to boast, as awkward as that is. He's engaged in that. And he's going to show, look at this comparison, me and them, how they are and how I am. And he's going to do that this morning in his kind of his final and really when you, when you drill into it, the most serious of all accusations that he's going to make against them. How they respond in the middle of weakness and failing tells you everything you need to know about them and about him. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Not just how Paul approaches life of troubles, but how we can and should to a privilege that is ours because we're in Christ. So I'm going to read the passage and then I'll draw out two observations from it. This is 2 Corinthians beginning in chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. Paul writes, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12. Make two observations. They kind of come from the first and then from the second half of the passage. Here's the first. Christ-like ministers are identified by what they teach and by how they live, not by supposed supernatural experiences. Christ-like ministers are identified by what they teach and how they live, not by supposed supernatural experiences. In verse 1, Paul acknowledges that 
given the Corinthian context and the claims made by these teachers, he does indeed have to continue on with his boasting by exploring another subject area that they made a big deal of. So he has to engage with supernatural encounters, visions, words from the Lord, revelations, etc. They claimed much of this, and judging from some statements that we've seen previously back in chapter 5, they were at times apparently beside themselves or kind of out of their minds, as if possessed or being carried along in a trance or, or in some way moved in some communication with God. They were altered in their state. And all of that was evidence, so it was claimed, that they were really in touch with God. It's not unlike what happens in large slices of churches even here in America today. There's something, something going on here, something supernatural, something that is amazing and full of wonders. And so those people are really in touch with God. And by comparison, Paul looks plain old ordinary, boring, even dead. He doesn't do any of that stuff. So, the implication is, so, who's really in touch with God? This guy or us? That's the challenge. And Paul has to respond, though there is nothing to be gained by it, he writes, I'll go on to this subject of visions and revelations of the Lord. This is so pointless, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But I can play that game too. Let me tell you about something that happened 14 years ago. This is Paul talking about himself, but he's doing so in such a very indirect and a very humble way. He just describes himself as a man in Christ, just an ordinary Christian. This occurred during the part of Paul's ministry life that we know nothing about, the, the 10 years that were kind of before the stuff in the book of Acts. That's the silent period of Paul's life and dating it, it puts him right in that period there. He was caught up to heaven and using Jewish language, he mentions being caught up to the third heaven and Jewish teachers also talked about the seventh heaven and the fifth heaven and the 10th heaven. Not that there are three, five, seven, and 10 heavens, they're talking about it in a sense of holy of holy, highest of highest, the throne room of God, not the ordinary places where people dwell, but, as Paul says in verse 3, paradise. The very presence, the innermost circle of where God is. And Paul was taken there, and he doesn't know how he was taken there, bodily or not, I'm not sure. I was... I was there somehow. I don't know. God knows. He repeats it twice. I don't know what was going on, but something was going on. And I was there in the presence of the Holy One in his throne room, and I heard things. I heard things and I saw things that I cannot describe. Things which man may not utter. Two different statements there. Things which I couldn't explain to you if you had no context for it, you wouldn't understand, but I'm actually not allowed to talk about it anyway. It was just for me. Whatever Paul saw and heard there, it must have been astounding. Because the purpose of the thorn in verse 7, follow it through there, was to keep him from being too elated. It says that twice in the verse. So, what he saw in heaven would have been a danger to Paul, would have led him towards pride, being haughty, 
And so he needed to be kept back from that. So whatever it was, there was, there was something amazing. Probably, if, if you kind of guess about this, probably God showed him this during that period of time because God knew of chapter 11 that was coming. The very, 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 very hard road that he was going to lead Paul down. And so as to help him with that, he showed him something of the glory. But it was just for Paul, not for us. Talk about your visions and your supernatural revelations. And Paul says in verse 6, if I wanted to boast about this, I'd be telling the truth. That actually happened. That's real. But it'd be totally pointless to boast in that. In fact, I haven't even mentioned that in the last 14 years. I haven't told anybody about this in 14 years. Because what good would it do? What help would it be How could you evaluate that? How would it help you in trying to decide whether or not to follow me? What can you verify there? What can you check or evaluate? So what do you do with that? Nothing. I could maybe perhaps try to impress you with the description, and I could maybe try to reenact some of it, and I could put on some sort of a display about something, try to impress you and win you over to my side. But at the end of the day, all I'm doing is trying to persuade you with the tale of a supernatural event that may or may not have happened for all you know. Follow his logic here. This is going somewhere. All boasting like that in supposed supernatural powers or encounters or experiences, even if it happens right in front of your own eyes, the whole discussion is pointless because it doesn't tell us anything. But you'll say to me, Paul, it's so amazing. I mean, it's right in front of my eyes. Look at it. It's, it is wonderful. It is astonishing. And the feel in the room, it is, is electric, and it is profound and encouraging, and it moves me. And look at the audience here. All the people here are moved to tears, and they are, they are so encouraged and built up. It's wonderful and engaging and alive and real. And Paul says, so what? Have you ever been to a concert? Or seen a really good movie and been moved by it? And do you realize that every other religion in the world, which biblically understanding we know are all false, that they all have experiences and trances and visions and things in them? So what? That could all just be a product of Rhythmic drum lines and astonishing light shows and great music and a very electric and profound and charismatic personality on stage who's acting like he's in touch with another world. It could all be made up. Or he might actually think he is in touch with another world because it all could be from Satan too, right? There are supernatural forces in the world that are not from God, that are dark. And they masquerade as angels of light. I already told you that in the previous chapter, remember? That's what's behind these other guys who are there in Corinth. They are coming from somewhere, from something, and he has power. It could be made up, or it could be Satan. Or maybe it is from God. All of my, Paul would say, 
all of my revelations and visions have indeed been real and from God. But the point is, no one can tell by looking at the show or listening to the show's report or the claims or seeing how it's impacting people in the moment or how it's making, making them to feel. It might be from God or it might not. Who knows? So there's no point in me boasting in any of this or you taking any pride in any of this. So, verse 6, I'm not going to. I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to set it off to the side and not boast of this about me. But instead, I'm going to ask you to look at me and how I live and listen to me and what I teach and evaluate me in that way. See, that's where he kind of goes with all this. I can play this game and I can play this game really well. But what's the point? It doesn't help you in any way. So don't form an opinion of me based on any of that stuff or don't form an opinion of anybody else based on any of that stuff. But instead, I want you to look at two things. How do I live and what do I teach? Think of me and form an opinion of me and of everyone else on those two lines that you can check against the written word of God and that you can check against the lived out word of God, Jesus. Do what I teach and what I say, do those things match the scriptures? And do what I teach and what I say and how I say it match Jesus, the suffering servant, like I talked about him in the last chapter? Does it? And do what they say and what they teach and how they live match the scriptures and match Jesus? Does it? No? Then don't follow them. They aren't actually sent of him. They aren't actually living in line with him and you shouldn't follow them no matter how amazing their wonders seem to be or how emotionally powerful and deep and moving and popular their large shows, I mean their services, seem to be. How do they live? What do they teach? That's Paul's point. And it's totally relevant for us today. Totally relevant for us today. Especially in certain wings of the large house called American Christianity. Much of what Paul has said so far, if you, if you think back, if you've been here in the previous weeks and you think back to what we've seen in 11 and 10, much of what he has said so far, particularly if you look at verse 20 from the previous chapter about how these guys were treating the congregation there, much of that is, is talking about and is kind of identifying for us wolves in sheep's clothing, people who have come in to abuse and use the flock and are doing it particularly through power plays. And if not wolves, at least wolfish leaders who are very hard and abusive. And so we've, we've kind of seen some of that and been, a, been alerted to it. That's good. We need to watch that. That's a clear problem in our day, and we can very easily think through different ministries and different churches that have been, over time, misled by leaders like that. But here, as he turns to a different issue, we get a kind of another take on things. 
There's another element of power being used by these teachers that we need to be alerted to. The claims of supernatural connection and influence and how they tried to use that and show it and win people to themselves with these types of displays. That raises another issue that we need to look at. In the church today, in the church broadly speaking, there is at times a heavy influence on the supernatural a heavy influence on what is often called movements of God or movements of the Spirit or outpourings of God's power. Almost as if, so heavily emphasized, almost as if that's the one and the only criteria, the one and the only characteristic of a God-anointed leader. Is there some sort of a shazam going on here this morning? Miraculous gifts and events and a power-charged atmosphere of deep emotional movement. Do you have that? Does your church or your ministry have a, a, a miraculous presence or presentation and a feel of just a power-charged atmosphere? And am I emotionally gripped and moved and pulled along? You got that? Good enough. The Spirit must be here. That's all I'm looking for. That's a problem. Now, just to be clear, I I am not here, I am not here to tear down the entire charismatic or Pentecostal movement. That would be unfair and inaccurate. Way too big of a brush be painting with way too big of a brush to say that. I'm not trying to do that. But I am trying to say, I think Paul is trying to say, that we need to evaluate the types of churches and ministries, the types of leaders that we set up and follow, and even, maybe this is where it comes around to us especially, what we're looking for and expect to find in a ministry or a church and a leader. We need to evaluate all that with a different set of criteria other than is there a shazam in the room. Life and teaching. Life and teaching. Watch my life, says Paul, and watch my teaching. And incidentally, when he taught other leaders elsewhere in the Bible, he said the similar things. Watch your own life and watch your own teaching. That's where the whole ball game is, is being played, in your life and in your teaching. And check it against the scripture. Does it match? Check it against Jesus, the suffering servant. Does it match? Yes, that's where the power of God resides. No, then don't be impressed by what looks like anything else. Life and teaching. That may change how, if if that was to be understood and applied, that may change how certain parts of the church work. I, I don't live in those parts of the church and I, I only say, I think there's a criteria here, do with that what you will. But I'm, I'm more concerned about us. And I think it comes down to, for applications comes down to us as we think about what am I looking for? What am I expecting in, in a leader or in a ministry or in a church? Am I looking for something that is impressive Or am I looking at life and teaching? 
That's where Paul points us for himself and for anybody else that we might set up in leadership and for any kind of a ministry experience we might want to join, become a part of, follow in. What is the, the life and what is the teaching of the leaders and what is encouraged in life and in teaching in those who follow? That's Paul's point. And then he comes to one particular piece of life that we should look at. How do they live in the middle of suffering? That leads us to the second point. Christ-likeness joyfully embraces weakness so as to experience God's glorious strength. Christ-likeness joyfully embraces weakness so as to experience God's glorious strength. Verse 7, Paul brings up this thorn in the flesh, with, which lots of folks have guessed at. What is that thorn? Nobody knows. There's no way to tell. We can't know what it was, but we can know why it was. To keep Paul from being too elated by the surpassing greatness. says that twice. In other words, to keep him humble. So, thorn, sunk in the flesh. Thorn given to him. By whom? By whom? Very important point here, which I need to, before I talk about, I need to kind of say off the side, I, I realize that some of this could be for some of us completely theoretical and our minds may immediately go to the theological ins and outs of this and that and we may run along on this path. And for others of us, this may be immediately, intensely personal. Because when I started talking about a thorn, it's not, it's not some theory, it's, it's, it's stuck deep in you and you're bleeding right now. I hear that, I feel that, and I want to say if, if, this, if this is so, so personal that it's, it's wounding and you want to talk more about it, I would be more than happy to. I would, I would relish the opportunity to talk more about it in a personal and particular intimate setting. But, but I need to engage perhaps a little more with the theoretical in this public setting. There is some, some deep water here. There's a thorn given to him by whom, this is very important, given to Paul by God. Now, of course, the very next phrase in the sentence says, a messenger of Satan that harassed Paul. Right there. So it's accurate to say that the intermediate giver is Satan, for sure. But the ultimate, the primary giver must be God himself. Not only does the grammar actually say that, but the logic of it also says the vision and the dream, the, the vision and the thorn is given as a counterweight to the vision. That was given by God. This is also given by God. And Satan never gives anything to keep Christians from pride. Satan gives things to push Christians towards pride. This is God recognizing, I just poured gasoline in his lap. 
So I need to dilute that in some way. I need to help him. I'll give him a thorn. Paul recognizes I have a thorn given in a sense by Satan, but ultimately by God. This is the ultimate example of weakness that Paul mentions here. But as verse 10 makes clear, it's just one of a list of things that are all essentially similar. Weaknesses and afflictions and calamities of Paul's life, of a Christian's life. They're all of a sort. Yet some of them are the results of of life in the fallen world. Storms, disease, accidents. Some may be wicked evils inflicted by someone who will be held accountable. But in another real sense, God gave them all for a reason. This is extremely frequent and clear in the Bible. But it is often confusing and often misunderstood by Christians because it is just so very hard to receive. You, you can see it there spelled out in different passages and you, as it kind of comes toward us, it, it is hard to receive and so we want to turn it or change it in some way so that it rests a little more easily. But it's, it's there clear. God is sovereign. And all that happens is under his reign and only happens because he decided it should happen. Even evil things like the selling of Joseph into slavery in Egypt. God did that. For good reason, the scripture is clear. And the brothers did it, of course. For evil reason, the scripture is clear. And they are responsible for it. Even evil things like the murder of Jesus on the cross, God did that. The scripture is clear for good reason. And the scripture is also clear that Herod and Pilate, Jewish leaders and crowds and Gentile government officials, they did it for evil for which they are responsible. God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh to keep him from pride, a good reason. And there's another good reason coming, which a greater reason, in fact, which we'll see. But of course, Satan also gave it to harass him and to discourage him and try to, try to steer him away from this ministry and even to destroy him if he could. Over and over again, this is the case. All affliction, all our hardships and sufferings and pains and losses, the Christian can tell this double story about them all. All of our lives. This was meant for evil by Satan, meant for evil by maybe other people or by the world, even by myself and my own sin, meant for evil to hurt and destroy, but God gave it, meaning it for good, to redeem, to keep me, and more. That double story, that's what Paul knows about this thorn. And Paul also knows that God answers prayer. And so, perhaps, God will say yes to this request of mine. I'm in the middle of, of hard, whatever it is, it's, it's hard. Whatever it is, it's hurt. Whatever it is, I'm pained. And so I'm going to plead with the Lord, please, Lord, remove this thorn. Pull it out. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord like that, which does not mean on three different occasions he uttered three different sentences. Probably during periods of intensity, he for a period pled, for a period pled, for a period. Three different times. God, help. Take this. I don't want it. Fix it. Change it. Remove it. Let it pass from me. A very natural and permissible, even wise and proper approach that we often instinctively do. And Paul did it. Probably through tears. Ah, help. Take this. Okay, now look into verse 9. The second half of verse 9, after the red letters, if you have a red letter edition, there's a quote there that's from Jesus. After the quote, something changes. I don't want this, please take it, now becomes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Gladly. I will boast of my weaknesses, of this thorn and more. And look at verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. And oddly, I think, I think the translators put the word content there because a better way to translate that word would sound so wrong. A better way to translate that word would be delight. But it sounds really odd. I delight in weakness and insult and hardship and calamity, even all the garbage of the world. I'm okay with it. I'm even thankful for it. That is weird. That's weird. There's a dramatic change here in attitude. Do you, do you see this change? Seven, eight, I'm harassed, I'm pleading. Nine, ten, I'm glad-hearted, boasting, delighted, and content. The thorn did not go anywhere. It's still there. And the change happens. All the hardships in life become an opportunity for praise and joy. The thorn becomes an opportunity, and so does the affliction and persecution and calamity. All it becomes an opportunity for praise and joy, not after they're gone, but while they remain. That's weird. And that's awesome. Do you follow why that's awesome? Because Paul's showing us something that we can know. If you're a Christian, you can know this. I don't need a persecution-free life in order to be glad and content and joyfully delighted. I can do that in the middle of persecution. And super oddly, Paul is even saying that there is a type of gladness and contentedness and even delight that I can experience only with persecution or calamity or weakness of some sort. The unique delight of being the home of the sufficient, sustaining, glorious power of God. That is a unique delight that only shows up in the middle of hardship. That's what he's going to say. That's how the change happened. You notice this change from 7, 8, 
to 9, 10. How did that happen? We need to see this so we can experience it. What happened is that Paul prayed and Jesus answered his prayer and then Paul thought about it and got it. Verse 9, those red letters, that's Jesus' answer to the prayer. And the answer shows us shows up a couple more times in 9 and in 10. It's, in, it's, it's repeated twice more. Paul works out what that means for him and for every Christian, and we need to too. So he pleads and Jesus answers, basically saying the thorn's going to remain, but the actual language is kind of interesting. You read there, probably your translation says, but he said to me, beginning of verse 9. Really the force of that statement is, is an ongoing abiding force, a lasting force. He answered when I prayed, but that answer holds. Maybe think of it like, like a boat with an anchor. Like you, you have dropped anchor, and you only drop the anchor once. But the fact that you have dropped anchor has an abiding impact on the boat. As moment and hours go by, then it bounces in the waves, the fact that I have dropped anchor abides. He has said to me something that abides. Please take this away. Please take this away. My grace is sufficient for you. Holding. This is the ongoing abiding situation, Paul, Christian. My grace is sufficient for you. You don't need the thorn pulled. Actually, no, you need the thorn left in. You need my grace, though, to be with you. My power made perfect in your thorn situation. And that's what you have. My grace, my power with you and enough for you. Sufficient. With you and enough for you to enable you to endure the pain in a way that is not just teeth gritting, toughing it out, soldiering on. But in a way that is actually life-giving. A power, my power, at work in you to bring to you hope and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Me, living in you, my spirit filling you in the midst of the pain, power to make you different, power that will move in you so that you can know the love that God has for you. If you think of the book of Ephesians, the end of chapter 3 talks about how we would be strengthened with power to know the love of God. That's what, that's what Jesus was saying to Paul, helping him get out of here. There's going to be a power in you that's going to help you know something that you already know, but you're going to know it. That the love of God for you is wide and long and high and deep, and that will give you power to live in the middle of the pain, power to live praising him, power to live delighting in him, power to show all of the world that health and wealth and success are not the gods you live for, not what you hope in. That with, with all that gone, with all that lost and never coming back, yet you still stand like a tree planted by streams of living water, drawing up life from somewhere else in the middle of the desert. How did that happen? Psalm 1 says it happens when you walk with the Lord. Jesus says it happens when my power dwells in you. 
power to make you new, power to give you life. That's not natural. A Christian can live supernaturally because that's not natural. We don't respond that way to hardship and trouble. Be happy and delighted in it. We are happy and delighted when the weakness goes away and we wish that this would read that the power pulled out the thorn, but it doesn't. The power gave life with the thorn and with every other trouble. It doesn't take any divine power, though, to live happy and delighted with wealth and health and success and power. And in the end, this is Paul's most devastating critique of these false leaders. Watch not just what they teach, watch how they live. They demand and force power and success and glory. I live with delight in the middle of weakness, just like Jesus, who pleaded with the Lord, take this from me, Lord. Can you cause the cup to pass? Can you pull out the thorn? Can you make the stake pass away from my life? Can you remove the cross, please? No, for the joy set before me, I'll step into it then and embrace it and endure it. Jesus came and did this perfectly. We don't. We fail. He did it for us and then opened up something beyond just paying for our sin, for our sinful love of the power of the world and our inability to live in weakness. He did something more. He opened up the Spirit's release into our lives so that we can live powerful like this. We can live in the power of God, content, even delighted in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions, etc. Weak in the middle of all that, standing strong like some superhuman, like some bizarro person, like a Christian, like Jesus. Strong to embrace situations that are likely to hurt Strong to give away my life for Christ's glory and for the good of others. Strong to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. And turn the other cheek when they strike me. Strong to do that. That requires the power of God in me. That's what Jesus means to give to us. And we only experience that best in the middle of pain. So Paul says, I'm good with that then. Bring on the pain. I'm going to pray and ask it to go away. But if not, I'm good with that. I'm, I'm plenty good with that because that means that what you're going to give me with the pain is you're going to give me the presence of God in abundance. I want that more than anything. This is the mature Christian life. This is what Paul got and understood and what enabled him to walk through a life that was really, really tough. It's counterintuitive, but it's real, and it's a life offered to you and to me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Let me pray.
Father, help us believe. We do believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to believe. We don't have to seek out weakness and hardship in life. It'll come. We live here. It'll come. But would you also, when it comes, would you also remind us of this passage and of Paul's experience and of what you mean for us to experience also? Will you remind us and pull us closer and give us power to know how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us? Empower to live in joy, experiencing your life-changing power within us. Give us power for that, please. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. We need you. We trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.